0: The OAM Network is an independently run podcast and live production company in Memphis, Tennessee. TheOAMnetwork.com. Power to the podcast.
1: Welcome to the Permanent Record. I'm Josh Spickler, Executive Director of Just City. We're a nonprofit criminal justice reform organization based in Memphis, Tennessee. The Permanent Record is a, our podcast about the criminal justice system and how we can work together to make it work better for everyone. You may not know Raymond Santana's name, but you know his story. He's one-fifth of the group now known as the Exonerated Five, five young men from New York City who were wrongfully convicted of raping a woman in Central Park in 1989. Raymond and the others served between 6 and 13 years in prison before being fully exonerated in 2002 when another man confessed to the crime after being linked by DNA evidence. Raymond, Antron McRae, Kevin Richardson, Yusef Salam, and Corey Wise are now telling their stories, and they're the subject of a recently released Netflix series, When They See Us. Raymond was in town for an appearance, and he graciously agreed to squeeze in a few minutes to chat with us before that event. Raymond, thanks so much for joining us. It's great to have you. Um, You and I were talking earlier, and um, you're two months older than I am.
0: (laughs) Yeah, right? (laughs) Yeah.
1: Um, And earlier this year, you posted a picture of yourself in your early teens, um, sitting on the edge of your bed in a University of Virginia hat. yeah that picture yeah i know i say this at the risk of kind of inserting myself into this which i have absolutely no right to do but i had that hat oh yeah (laughs) it was the first hat that my dad and i shared (laughs) like it's a navy blue hat it's Mm -hmm. got uh, orange letters on it and in big orange letters it says uva and it was like the first hat my dad let me share with him and so when i saw that picture you know i looked up your birthday and i realized you know (laughs) we were at the the same place in life wearing a uva hat uh, when we were 14 years old um your story is um, much different than mine for in a lot of in a lot of ways. But but I wanted to talk to you more about what your life was like then when you were sitting on the edge of the bed in I guess like 1985 that's, um, or no, something
0: that's, like um, that. that's that's later on. That's like 1993. That's oh, Go- that's that was Go- later. To the secure center. Oh wow! Yeah, when it when it um when um when the system was more into rehabilitation mm-hmm. and not and not uh punishment. Okay. Right. We was able to wear our own clothes for a while. Oh, I see. And, and we was able to um have like we can go to wood uh, work in um wood shop and make furniture and stuff like that. So it was a little different in the beginning.
1: Yeah, so what did I just to stick with that hat for a second, what yeah. did that hat mean to you? Well why, you why know, that
0: hat? I, I got into um uh, basketball huh. um, you know, when I entered into the system. And so at that point in my life I always we watch a lot of college basketball sure. and we watch NBA. And Virginia was one of the teams that, you know, that I just, I, I liked at that moment. You know, um, UNLV was another one, right? Larry Johnson. and the Oh, players. that's right. Yeah, they played that. So, and uh, we always hated Duke, right? Right, of course. Always, and
1: what was the coach who chewed on the towel? Uh, um, Jerry Tarkanian. Jerry Tarkanian, right? Yeah, yeah.
0: So, so, so that's what that was for me. It was that phase because it was all, it was all connected to basketball. Yeah. Um, So that's where the hat came from.
1: I was an Indiana fan at that time in my life. How do you, um, how does I'm, that sit with you? Oh, uh, Bobby Knight, right? That's right. Yeah, man. yeah. You like Steve Alford. Yeah, I
0: mean. Isaiah Thomas came from there. so That's right. Yeah. I mean, he always had the incident of throwing the chair. Bobby Knight. Right? Bobby yeah. Knight. Right? Yeah. He's one of those getting your face guys. Get in there. Right? So it was good. It was good. It was good for basketball. That resonated with me back then. It does not <laughs> resonate with me right now.
1: Before the system, before you got involved in the system, before now, that picture, what, tell us about your family, your childhood. What was well, life like?
0: I came from a middle class family. My dad um, worked all his life at a hospital. right? started out as a cook and um, he wound up getting, uh, he wound up having an accident at work. And um and they thought he was gonna sue the hospital and he didn't so he wound up um becoming a nurse's aide, right? Back then you didn't really have to have certificates and all that stuff that came later on, and so we came from a good family, middle class family, and and me being you know that young kid it was just about living life, right? Not not having a care, having an option I you know, I, I never said I want to be a doctor or a lawyer, and I was a sketch artist, right? So I loved to sketch all the time and I loved to listen to hip hop music, and so it was just having that carefreeness of not having to have um, restrictions, yeah. Like yeah. most boys, your age. yeah. Right? Fourteen year old, right? Like, don't even. What do you want to be? I don't know. I'll figure it out later. I got time.
1: What was school like? Was it easy for you? Yeah,
0: school was definitely. I mean, there was a struggle in the beginning, um, but when you know, when when you focus, it, it becomes easy. And and so school was easy for me. And I love to hang out cause with the fellas at school, because there was always jokes and a lot of girls around. <laughs> so so you know, fourteen years old, yeah. You know, he start liking them girls and. That became the motivation of how I started to dress much more better because the yeah. girls would take 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 a look at it and say, right. "Oh, Raymond knows how to dress." And did you
1: begin to be interested in fashion and clothing at that yes. time in your life?
0: Yes. At that time in my life, yeah. My dad used to take me to stores, and um, he would let me pick out the outfits and put them together, and then he would buy the same outfit but different colors. Oh, that's great! Right. So so, and then later on, I would try to steal his stuff. Like you ain't gonna wear it. Let me
1: just wear it. Let me <laughs> like me stealing my dad's hat. Yeah, <laughs> same kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> probably different style if I had yeah, to guess. <laughs> What what part of the city were you living in at that time?
0: Harlem. Harlem. Yeah, I was on the east side of Harlem. Gotcha. Yeah.
1: Um, So the story that everyone's familiar with is portrayed in uh, the new series on Netflix, uh, When They See Us. And uh, um, it portrays uh, very powerfully and clearly um, police interrogations. Yes. uh, It's one of the things that, that was, I thought, the most powerful um, and the Innocence Project uh, describes the time right after your arrest as, as including, quote, prolonged periods of police interrogations, <laughs> yeah. uh, end
0: quote. So um,
1: what's it like for a 14-year-old boy to be in a room with police officers with the, when the stakes just couldn't possibly be higher than they are? That and, like? and
0: not to understand what the stakes are. Right. Right. Not to understand, not to, uh, to be in the unknown because 'cause I've never been through this before, so this was new for me. Um, not to know what the outcome was gonna be, not you know, to know whether I not to know whether I was gonna live or so you know, or I was gonna die in a precinct. Because at this point when it's new, and these are towering figures, right? These are police officers, these are detectives. Um, and so these are authority figures and and, and not really understanding what's going on and what's gonna happen. So it becomes very frightening. Um and the and line of questioning you know, starts off very slow, and what do you do, who was you with, and then as it goes on, it intensifies. Right. And so, you're talking that it's estimate that we was in those rooms for 15 to 30 hours, right? With no food, no drink, no water as a 14-year-old kid. And so, not understanding what was the process or what really was going on, because, you know, they read the Miranda cards, but I'm mm-hmm. 14 years old, right. I don't know who Miranda is. Yeah, exactly. You know, she's not some girl at my school, right? <laughs> so, I don't know, I'm not paying attention. And, and and you hear it, you have right through me, silent. But that stuff doesn't resonate with a fourteen year old boy, right? Right. Um. Nobody prepared me for this. So so, the line of question becomes very intense as the time goes on. And because my grandmother was also in the room, she, fo- she spoke very little English. Right. Oh. She knew English curse words. <laughs> right. She encouraged you out of English. <laughs> don't use those. In yeah, the we don't use yeah. Precinct, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, but she couldn't carry conversation. Right. So every time, you know, they talked to me, they had to translate to her. And I guess that became too much. It was too much of a process. So um, they wanted take taking out the room. Right. And as as they started to take out the room is when they started to work on me. And yeah. so I ultimately I fall victim to the good cop, bad cop yeah, scenario, yeah. the and, stuff that you see on Law and Order and CSI nowadays. And you remember very vividly, it sounds like. When oh, yeah. Your grandmother would leave the room. Oh, yeah. The p- pressure would turn. And off. that's where it would start. And so it starts off, you know, with uh, the first time she leaves, the officer looks at me and uh, gives me the stare and he curses at me, right? And I'm mm-hmm. just like, okay, I don't know what's going on. And then mm-hmm. by the time you get to the second time uh, that she leaves out the room, the, the the officer who's interrogating me is yelling at me and there's another officer sitting on the side and he's talking in my ear and he's saying all this derogatory stuff and, and, and at the time I get a little bit shooken, yeah. right? Because now I say, all right, it's starting to get serious, but I don't know what's going on. and yeah. I feel helpless because I don't know what to do or who to turn to, Yeah, you know? My grandmother doesn't know and my dad's not there. So there's nobody to say, stop this interrogation, let's move
1: on. These days it's kind of, um, I I don't know if popular is the right word, but it's sort of well known that there's a distrust in certain communities between youth, in particular boys, uh, in particular boys of color, and Mm -hmm. the police. Um I wonder if back then growing up in the you know the late 80s early 90s in in Harlem was there the same distrust what was your experience with police prior to that and how I, were you taught to to behave I never around I them? never
0: had no real experience with the police back then and I wasn't taught like my dad and my uncles never taught me to s- stay away from them yeah. You know, it was it was never that, it was never, they never said, hey, the police are not your friends, don't talk right, to them.
1: Right. So there was a trust there there was that there, might I, not exist with a kid your age in Harlem right now.
0: Exactly. Right. I believe there was, you know. um And so, you know, I mean, I remember, you know, police was walking the beat, you know, tell us, to get off the corner, hey, you know, go down the block, stuff like that, what are you still doing out here, it's late. Yeah. Right, but it was never nothing like this. Right. So, you know, and nobody ever prepared me for it.
1: I don't know if this is a fair question, but I'm gonna ask it anyway, but if you were a, a white teenage boy, Brought in to the station on serious charges, uh, in the same time and place. How do you think you would have been treated?
0: Um, I think that you have to look at the whole dynamic, right? I think my dad, you know, he had a tenth grade education, right? Worked his whole life, you know, at the same job, forty four years, right? So even his experience was limited, right? So I think that also, you know, that was another way too, like with him because he didn't know. He never had no real dealings with the law. He never had no run-ins. So he's the 30th figure that's supposed to stop the whole thing, but he yeah. didn't know what to do. Yeah. Right. And I think that when you look at that and you change the dynamic if I was a white kid. right, And my dad, you know, graduated from college. Yeah. Right. It'd be totally different.
1: Yeah. You have a chance, I'm sure these days to talk to, uh, to talk to teenagers, teenage boys uh, about police interactions. What do you tell them?
0: I told them at the end of the day, it's, it's, um, you know, I always pose a question to people in the room, and I say, you know, for those of us who drive, you know, if you ever get pulled over by police, you have two fears, I mean, sorry, you have two feelings, two emotions, and it's either you get upset or you're paranoid, and it's all due to experience, right? What you hear that the police do and you never had an interaction, you get a little paranoid because you don't know what to expect. Mm-hmm. And if you have been through it, then you get a little upset. Um, And I tell them, at the end of the day, you don't have to be aggressive. Right? I use, I mean, I've been pulled over several times in my car. Yeah. And the first thing I do is I bring laughter. (laughs) And it works. I mean, mean, you pull me over and I know I'm speeding, that ID's already out the window. Yep. Like, we don't got to talk about it. I know what I was doing, I was guilty. (laughs) And that's what happens. The officer starts to laugh and he says, Well, I clocked you at, you know, 65 and 45. Yeah, officer, why are you doing it? Well, I got this new car. You can see it looks (laughs) fast. Don't want to test it out. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. he and he says, okay, your ID checks out, I'll give you a warning. It works. Right. To so sort of disarm them before the automatic. Before escalates. Because it's all about taking the aggression out. If you start to become hostile, then they have they and we have to also remember that police have a right if they feel that their life is in jeopardy to kill you. Right. That's right. automatic. So right. you you can't, you know, you can't sit there and say, Well, you can't do that. If he feels that he's threatened, he yeah. can't. So take that out of the equation. Yeah. Eliminate the aggression. Yeah,
1: you um, you told talked a minute ago about uh, a period of of uh, rehabilitative, uh, I guess, detention when yeah. when that picture was taken, um, and how you were sort of in this transitional kind of phase. Um, so, but you weren't exonerated until oh two, weren't yeah. fully exonerated in two thousand until two thousand two. So there was a period of time when you were in that transition, and then when you were out. Um, and I wonder what were your biggest challenges in that period of time when you had this serious conviction on your record.
0: Um, you know, when I when I first get released from from Goshen Secure, I come out with an associate's degree, mm-hmm. right, and I say, oh, I got the keys, I can <laughs> come better, I could do so I could be more productive, but and then I, I also walked into these new set of rules that I didn't know exist, right, and so for me, like what there was a seven o'clock curfew, oh, right, okay. um, I had to register as a sex offender, right, I had to attend sex offender meetings, mm-hmm. right, and um, and then there was these eyes on me everywhere I went because I was the first person that was released out of the jogger case, out of the other guys, right, so everybody had these eyes on me. Right? How was he gonna do? Like you got to keep your eyes on him. What is he up to? Will he do it again? Right? right? Like there was all these eyes that was on me. So I literally had to walk on eggshells. Yeah. You did know? you go
1: back to your neighborhood? Back to your home?
0: Yes, I did. I moved back to Harlem at the time, and 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 then I had this this these characteristics that came back with me from prison that I didn't know exist. You know, because oh. here I was seven years in the right. system that had indoctrinated me and yeah. put these 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 uh these these uh these, these uh. Uh, uh, these characteristics that you know I didn't know like habits, almost like yeah. habits. Yeah, exactly. And and I mean I stood in my room because my room was the size of a cell, so I would stay there all day. Wow, right? I mean I, I, I showered with my boxes on, <laughs> right? And so it, it isn't until I, I come across, I start to think about that stuff later on. I'm like, all right, how do I change this behavior? So that was stuff that was new for me that I didn't know, and um, and so ultimately I didn't know how to function in society. Right, I was institutionalized. They did not do their job. Yeah. Yeah, I was institutionalized, and nobody ever sat me down and said, this is how you transition. Right. There was no halfway houses, no uh, no work release for us, for the five of us. Yeah. We didn't get those benefits.
1: And so in those years, it was about, so
0: about seven years maybe? About seven years. Were you able to work at all? Um, no, well, 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 I did seven years, and then when I came home, um, I couldn't. Oh, that because was transitional. So yeah. seven yeah. of those So, years. so I when I fill these applications, right. you know, and it was like, well, you have a conviction. Yeah. All right. There's no job. Mm-hmm. And then if somebody said, well, what's your conviction? Rape charge. There's no job. Mm-hmm. And if ultimately somebody said, well, I know you. I can look, you know, what was the conviction of? The Central Park Jogger case. <laughs> See you later. There's no mm-hmm. job. So that was it.
1: Is there at all a time in that period of your life where you can remember being happy and content? And if so, ha- what was that? And how did you get to that place? Um,
0: I mean, there's period to that, you know, just uh, when you, you know, after seven years, I can eat a, uh, a order of chicken wings and fried rice from the Chinese spot, right? <laughs> stuff like, yeah, I mean, right. small stuff. You start sure. to start looking at the small stuff that you missed out on all those years and you appreciate those things. You know, I used to um, take these long walks and sometimes guys would see me go, wait, where, where you be walking to? <laughs> right. And I would just be walking because in prison you, you do what's called spinning the yard mm-hmm. and you just walk in a circular motion. But now I'm free and I could take these long walks. So I would walk sometimes from my house to 86th Street. I live on 117th Street. Oh, good All long 80, walk. Long walk. Right. Because you could. Because you could. So it was things like that that you find those joys. Right. You know, um,
1: at what age did you go to a, an adult prison facility? New York's age was younger. Twenty-one. Then I oh not At 21, twenty-one, you
0: get you get transferred. So, I see. so I, I wound up going to an adult facility. Um, I wound up going to Franklin Correction. I'm sorry, I went to Downstate Correctional which is the processing center. Um, I stood there three months and then I get released. Mm-hmm. And then when I go back to prison, when I go back to prison, because I go back on a parole violation, mm-hmm. they send me to Comstock, which is Great Metal Correctional Facility. That. How that's long? The next, that's How long did you spend? S- I spent twenty months there. Oh, wow. Yeah, totally different.
1: So before, it was uh, a chicken wing order from the local restaurant and maybe a long walk. What makes you happy and content now? Um, You're exonerated. You're part of this story that everyone knows. You're going to Hollywood for premieres. You're meeting all (laughs) kinds of famous people. Those things are are things, but I wonder what makes you happy and content now.
0: The foundation that makes me happy is um, knowing that I have options. Hmm. That's what it all boils down to. Knowing that on this day I can get up. And go outside or I can just sit in my bed all day and watch TV to have that option. Yeah. And I apply that to life. You know, I'm not in a rush to do things. (laughs) Um, I take my time. I move at my pace because- It's all about the option for me.
1: Right. Because we're only 45. We're young men.
0: That's right. It just started. (laughs) It just started at 45. Like, Even though I tell them in my speech, I'm 35 and the crowd just laughs at me. But but yeah. I'm sorry. I blew your cover. No, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. fine. We look good for 45. We We do. We do. Take it. Um, Take it.
1: (laughs) So there's this origin story about the Netflix series, When They See Us, where you you hit up Ava DuVernay on Twitter in about 2015, um, which maybe some of us have done, you know, tried to... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Tried to get in someone's timeline and in yeah. their mentions and see what happens and it worked. Like there's this incredible Emmy winning series now. Uh and and tell us more about that story and, and, and how how that came about and, and what it meant. Yeah, the
0: biggest thing that it worked. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> That's when you look at it like that really worked. Um and so I was married at a time and I went to see Selma, right? Selma had just came out and I went to see Selma and there's a scene in there where uh Cloretta is confronting Dr. King about women and You know, like she's accusing him of cheating. Fidelity, right. Infidelity stuff, right? And I was like, and I'm watching this and and the audience is quiet and I'm sitting and I'm upset, right? Because I'm like, who puts this in the movie? This is Dr. King. You don't do this. Don't Dr. King. That's right. This is our iconic figure. This is our civil rights leader. You don't do this to him. But then there was a part of me later on when I thought about it and I said, well, whoever this person was, they told truth. If this is his truth, they wasn't afraid to put it out there. The filmmaker. The filmmaker. And that's bold. And I said, because before that, we had numerous people who uh, who reached out and, and wanted to do a project on us, but people always messed it up, hmm. right? And so we didn't want to take that chance, so we were real hesitant. And so when I saw this, and I said, well, this would be a perfect person, because this person was not afraid to tell the truth, right? She put it out there, and I said, let me start doing my little research on Ava. <laughs> so I started researching Ava, and... um. And you know she was a beautiful sister, long dreads. Right, right. I was like, oh, okay, I see you. So, <laughs> um, so and then I started following her on Twitter. And my handle at the time was the Central Part Five. So she she followed me back, right. and I was like, okay, right. That's so I, You know, it was it was a nice little celebration at the house, right. and my wife was laughing at the time. My ex wife, she was like, oh, cut it out. You don't know Ava. <laughs> She's not gonna follow you. <laughs> and so, one day I just I created the tweet, and then I I, I shot it at her, and she retweeted it oh and so when she retweeted it i said oh wait a minute and your tweet
1: was something like when are you gonna tell our story yeah but the tweet right? was
0: like what would your next movie be oh. central part five right. cp5 hashtag hopefully right. fingers crossed and she retweeted it right and i was like okay so but you know i didn't get i i, I got my hopes up a little bit but mm-hmm. i was like let's just see what happens and then maybe after that month or so she dm'd me Right, so she she slid into my DM and um, (laughs) she said, um, "Hey, you know nobody has the rights to your story," and I was like, "Nah, we are waiting on you." (laughs) Right. Good answer. That was great answer. Right. And then um and then she said, "Well, I'll be in New York in a couple of months. Can we sit down and have dinner?" And I said, "Yeah, this is it. Like, once I get at this table, I'm shooting all my shots." That's right. And 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 that's what happened. So afterwards, um, we have dinner. We talk for about two hours, and right before you know she's getting ready to go, she says. Well, can I meet the rest of the guys? And I said, Oh yeah, this is it. This is it. Yeah. Because all I had to do was call the guys and say, Look, I'm working on this. I need you to be here. Come meet Ava. And the next time was that she came. She met uh, Kevin and Yusuf. Right. And then she wound up meeting Corey. And then she went down to Atlanta to meet Antron. And um, <sighs> rest was history. And the re- yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. <laughs> so tell so and and.
1: You can see that on Netflix right now. Mm-hmm. When they see us, see it right now on Netflix, In- incredible, incredible yeah. uh, series. But tell us about you now. Tell us about Park Madison, New York City, and and wh- how you are today.
0: All right. So I created the line um, around 2015. Um, you know, I was um, my business partner at the time with the line was a guy by the name of Rashid Young who uh, was Russell's, worked for Russell Simmons. Mm. He was president of Fat Farm, uh, Russell Athletics, and so we were sitting there just having lunch, and he said, "Well, Ray." What do you want to do? Like, you just want the settlement. You can go travel the world, live your life, drink, you know, sip on some (laughs) drinks. And I said, no, I'm not. I'm not done. Like, there's this thing that I lost, you know, as a 14-year-old kid, you know, and I want to try to create that. I want to recapture that. And he was like, so what's that? And I said, (laughs) T-shirts. And he looked at me like, T-shirts? Yeah. You you really want to do that? And I said, yeah. And he said, all right, I'll show you how to do it. And so he shows me how to do it we we launched we launched park in madison nyc you know months later and it does fairly well yeah. right and so here I was I'm trying to build this t-shirt line I'm trying to make it a little bit high end a little bit um but the story of the five and 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 the story of what we've been through wouldn't let me the public wouldn't let they wouldn't accept it it was they was like D- you got dope t-shirts but this isn't we don't want this for you
1: right we want you somewhere else we want you somewhere right else in santana you belong to us sort of yeah
0: yeah. And that's exactly how it became You belong mm-hmm. to us. And so we want you somewhere else. And so um and so when now when when they see us as Genre drop, I um I designed the Brotherhood T shirt, right? right. And, and then I design um I take my mugshot picture. Yeah. And I that. make that the tribute shirt, right? And so I designed those two and I show it to Ava. Mm-hmm. And Ava says, Oh, that brotherhood is a winner.
1: Yeah, I, I just uh, let me interrupt you for a second. We we're at an event here in Memphis on a Saturday morning. I
0: saw a brotherhood shirt out there earlier. Oh, yeah? You haven't been out there yet. Oh, but there's man. some brotherhood shirts here in Memphis. <laughs> Sorry. Go ahead. Oh, we take it. We love it. We love it. And 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 Ava says, you know, how many of them shirts you printed up? And I said, Well, I print about a thousand. She says, That's not good enough. You need to print about five. <laughs> and I said, Ava, you're crazy. Nobody's printing a five thousand shirts to be sitting in my house. <laughs> She's like, I'm telling you, Ray, it's gonna do great. And um I drop it like right before the series drops, and that five thousand, that that thousand takes off two days. Hmm. Wow! And so, by the time you know it's a weekend, I'm in a hole about ten thousand shirts. Oh goodness! You've sold way more than you have. <laughs> oh, I sold way more <laughs> than I was like, oh, this is crazy. Um, but and then that shirt also, it also told me how far I was to reach. Yeah, because the shirt winds up being in Brazil, uh, it winds up being in France. London it, at South Africa, right? The shirt becomes global. The shirt itself becomes global, and um, and, and and then you go on Instagram. Yeah, it's everywhere. Right, right. You know, and so I said, "Well, this is the lane. So let me design a couple more. Cool. So I designed a uh, Corey Wise T-shirt, which does fairly well, also. And then now we have the new Exonerated shirt, which mm-hmm. is doing great. Cool. So,
1: and folks can find that at parkmadisonnyc.com. Right. Yeah. Um. I got got one more question. It's got a quote in it. It's a little long. Bear with me. You you wrote this on Instagram. I think this is where I saw it. You wrote, In 1989, we left in handcuffs and came back with a camera crew. (laughs) We became fighters, and now what you see here is what you created. What you thought you destroyed stands proud and tall, looks you in the eyes, and is no longer afraid. You did this. And now you have to deal with your consequences. We will never let you forget. So you're here in Memphis on a Saturday, you're away from your daughter, you're away from your family and your friends. And uh, you do this all the time. You told me you don't have to, right? You could keep, uh, you keep your head down. You could stay home. You could enjoy your life. You've got your passions. You've got, uh, you know, the ability to live comfortably. um, And you don't have to poke your head up to the people who think you're still guilty or or hate, you know, what you represent. Um, You don't have to sacrifice and, and tell your story like you're doing, even this morning. So, what do you want people to know, especially, again, young boys of color, about the world and the systems that run it and, and how you uh, experience that? Why do you do this and, and what
0: do people need to know? Well, you know, when we wind up getting our voices back due to the Ken Burns documentary, right? What you see there is us getting our voices back. And what you see now when they see us is us being grown men mm-hmm. and, and what we have become now, right? And we're fighters, And so we start to learn that the system doesn't want our young Right, to occupy a college dorm. They'd rather they occupy a jail cell. Yeah. Because that's how the system is done. It's run on numbers and it's run on budgets. And so we get out our beds every day to come out here and spread the message to show you that we are the example of of, of what happens when the system is running amok, when it runs at full speed and doesn't care who it is, right? Who occupies those spaces. Because now today it's black and brown, you know, it's black and brown boys. Tomorrow it can be white kids also. Right, because then it becomes about class. Mm-hmm. Can you afford to stay out of this? Mm-hmm. Because once you finish one commodity, and you have to keep running, you're gonna start looking other places. Right? We see it now. Donald the commodity Trump. commodity being people. Being people. Right. We see it now with Donald Trump looking at Mexicans. Right. Let's not be fooled. Right. He's you know he puts the narrative out there and he says, you know, they're bringing drugs and they're bringing and they're rapists and they're murderers across our borders. And what he does is he stirs up the public outcry. He stirs up the emotion. And now people say, do something about it. And so they start to round all these people up, right? They mm-hmm. separate mothers and they separate kids and they mm-hmm. put them into these, these, uh, these uh, uh, prisons. Yeah, let's call it what it is. Yeah, it's a budget there. Right, right. And then you start to look at the numbers and look at our look at our system today. It can ha- it could cost up to forty thousand dollars to house a man in prison. Yeah, how much does it cost to house a juvenile up right. to two hundred thousand dollars? Much more. So you follow the money and you get to really see what's what's happening here. And that same narrative that is being pitched against them was the same narrative that's being pitched against us in 1989, which we know it, which, which super the term super predator uh, leads to the 1984 crime bill which starts mass incarceration. And so that's the message. Yeah. The message is that if you don't wake up, you will be a statistic and you'll become part of the budget. Wow. Well, man, uh,
1: Raymond Santana, I'm so glad uh, you got your voice back. And let me say their names. You, Not just you, Antron and Kevin and Yusef and Corey also got their voices back. And I, I couldn't be happier uh, that you were kind enough to sit down with us uh, today. And I really, really appreciate your time. Brother, thank you for having me. That was Raymond Santana on the Permanent Record. Raymond's very active on Instagram and Twitter at Santana Raymond follow him, visit parkmadisonnyc.com for his line of shirts, hoodies, and jackets that he talked about. And of course, if you haven't already, put When They See Us in your Netflix queue. It's incredibly powerful. Thank Raymond so much for fitting us in during a very busy day in Memphis. As always, thanks to Gil Worth and the OAM Network for recording this episode on site, in the field, and for providing first-class podcast support. Check them out at theoamnetwork.com. Special thanks, as always, to Jeff Hewlett for a brand new version of our theme song, She Got Gone, from his new album, Around These Parts. Jeff's on Spotify, plays live all over town. Look out for him. I'm Josh Spickler. This is The Permanent Record, a production of Just City. Learn more about our work at justcity.org. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at JustCity901. The Permanent Record is on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a rating, leave us a review, help us build our audience. We'd really appreciate it. In a Just City... We listen and we speak up. Our thanks to you for doing both.
0: The OAM Network is an independently run podcast and live production company in Memphis, Tennessee. TheOAMNetwork.com Power to the podcast.